welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Benga. He was part of Dubstep's second generation who transformed the genre from a local concern into a global phenomenon. By age 28, Benga had toured the world several times over, so you can imagine the public's shock when he suddenly retired from the industry in February 2014. Yet since publicizing his battles with mental illness last year, he's back making music and playing shows. And Carlos Hawthorne spoke to him in London to see what it's like getting back in the game. As always, you can hear our full archive of exchanges at resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Benga is up next. I just wanted to say quickly that, you know, it's good to see you here. There was a time not long ago when maybe we didn't realise that you'd be back in the industry, back making music, back doing interviews, back DJing. How's it feel to be back? Feels good. It does actually feel good. I feel like I can be nothing but honest and I know that, you know, it's been like, uh, it's been an eye opener. I forgot what it feels like to kind of produce music, DJ, family life, whatever, I feel like it's all together and do it well. So yeah, it's, it's been an eye opener, but it's been wicked. Just looking at the kind of handful of gigs you've played so far since you've come back, Fabrics obviously stands out. Yeah. How was it like being back there? <laughs> Everybody around me was excited. And my family, all my family came out and I, I remember being on the way up there and we was playing like nights, playing 26 bass lines in the car and we was all just so gassed up, just excited. And I remember getting on stage and Pokes just give me this intro and he's like, Benga's back. And it was just like, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> Let's play some music. Do you know what I mean? But it was great. It was, it was so, uh, Fabric was amazing. And to see the crowd, it was literally like picking up where I left off. Really? Yeah, yeah to see the crowd just go mental from the get-go. It was great. Was it emotional? Yeah. In a good way. Yeah. It's, I'm struggling here because I just want to be completely honest, you know, and sure. I kind of feel like I've got a lot of music to finish. So that's always on my mind. Do you know what I mean? So I kind of, I've got one hand in the rave and I'm there and I'm excited and I'm pumped. But then I've also got my head in the tunes, that, like my new tunes that I'm playing and I'm kind of listening. And um, 
every producer will tell you this. Like, yeah, yeah. you listen to your tunes in a club. If it doesn't sound the way you wanted it to sound when you was at home, you're gonna freak out. So I'm back in that zone. I'm like freaking out about my tunes, but then the crowd's going mad. And I'm like, ah! I don't have to take it. But it's great though. Can't be mad. At so that. you dropped the new. You dropped the tracks off the new EP. In there. Yeah, yeah, a few of them. I mean, I, I mentioned Fabric there because it feels like it was really instrumental in the rise of dubstep and in, in shaping your career. Mm. You agree? Yeah, definitely. I feel like there are a few clubs that played a massive part. Plastic People being one of them. Fabric being one of them. And they're just the clubs in London because if I start to name clubs yeah. and other cities that played instrumental parts, we could be here forever. Yeah, But yeah, Fabric was definitely one of the clubs that... You know, as DJs, especially coming from plastic people and no disrespect to plastic people, but coming from plastic people and getting to play at a club like Fabric, it's like you it brings on a whole new level of excitement and a whole new level of dynamic. You know what I mean? You know, and it's such a statement. You're having three rooms at London's best club, one of the best clubs in the world, yeah. all dubstep. Yeah. You're headlining the room ones like, yeah. this is it, man, dubstep's here kind of thing. Literally. So yeah, obviously we're talking about your return because in I mean February 2014 you posted this thing on Facebook yeah. that said that you were stopping DJing, concentrating on your family. Yeah. No one really knew what was going on at the time. But I mean, what were the immediate circumstances that led up to that decision? I guess at the time, wasn't it actually really in my right mind? I cared a lot for the girls with at the time. I'd been doing a lot of just insane things. Right. You know, I was, I'd been doing a lot of insane things. This is like... Manic episodes. Manic episodes. I feel like I was pretty manic when I put out that statement. I guess I just had to deal with it, you know, right when you come down. But was it a decision that you made, that the doctor made, that was the management made? No, it was just a decision that was, it was just like spontaneous. Okay. Spontaneous. I was, I was in mania. I guess it kind of, it worked out for me in a way because it, it kind of made people leave me alone. I think at the time, I wasn't going to my shows. I was just like roaming the streets, doing crazy things. And so at the time, promoters are obviously thinking, what's going on? No one knows what's going on. So for me to put that statement up, even though it was pretty manic, it took some heat off my back. All right. So, I mean, in terms of, entering that kind of manic phase, was there a particular moment, a particular show that you remember as being the kind of, the point of no return? Oh yeah, definitely. I feel like this must have been early December, or maybe it was a little bit earlier than that, but I went to Singapore and I was playing this festival called Zook Out. And um, on the way there, I'd had some really bad episodes, but on the way there, I was really bad on the plane and I was like freaking out and talking about some religious stuff. I was just like freaking out. It was, it was sending me like really bad. I couldn't seem to snap out of this kind of, my sense of snow was like really making me freak out. Who's around me? What's going on? Wow. And I got to Singapore, kind of just tried to relax before my show. I think I had a day before I was actually playing and tried to relax. Didn't come out of the hotel room. I was just like freaking out like washing things like religiously and just kind yeah. of just like panicking about everything. Just, <laughs> is the devil here with me? Is this, is that? It was, it was quite crazy for me. And um, I can remember it all like it was yesterday. So then I, um, <clears throat> the day of my show, I go down to my gig and I have to do press. 
And it's like, I'm doing press with a lady from MTV and I'm freaking out. I'm, I'm freaking out. I'm like, what does MTV have to do with the devil? And what is this? And I'm just like, I'm getting through it somehow. Like I'm communicating, but on this next level, which is just like- And you're doing this crazy. all on your own? No, I was with my girl at the time, but okay. she was trying to, she like completely tried to keep me level and she, she didn't really understand what was going on at the time. So she did her best. And um, that show, I don't know how I got through it. I really don't. It's just like, one minute, somebody makes a sign, and that's something that just throws me off. So I start playing different music. If someone else makes a sign, that throws me off. I start playing other music. And I was just, just like, somehow I made it through that show. But that was, the, that was it. That was See it. See you later. You attributed the decline of your mental health to, to excessive touring and drugs. I mean, what, what role were drugs playing in your life in the kind of months and year? I mean, because you've always been a hard partier. Yeah. I've always hit it quite hard. And I feel like that point in my life, just before I got really, really ill, was there's a lot of things going on. And I kind of feel like I had a lot more time. I wasn't writing as much as I would be. I think I was moving studio and stuff like that. So then I just had, I feel like I had so much drugs around me at that time. And whereas during the week, I would focus on writing music and radio and stuff like that. But as I started to kind of not write as much music and I had that much drugs around me, I was doing it every day and just doing like cocktails and just going crazy. Mm -hmm. That definitely had a massive effect on me because I started having like these pseudo fits. You know, I'd have a few crazy thoughts and then I'd be back to normal and I'd be like, right, let's hit it again. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, everyone goes through that, or oh, this, this, or this. I've had slight moments before. And at this point I was just hitting it really hard. So that definitely played a massive part. I mean, looking back, <clears throat> do you think you were addicted to drugs? <sighs> Depends how you explain addiction, but I kind of feel like at the time, I wouldn't say I was addicted. Dependent is a better word. Yeah. Because I feel like a lot of the time when I was doing drugs, it was like, I'd be quite fatigued or, I couldn't quite get myself in a space where I could be myself. So then sometimes I would take something and I would be, I don't know whether you'd say settled, but I would function slightly better. Like I could communicate with people better. So then I thought to myself, maybe if I start taking Ket, I would constantly function on a level where I could communicate. I feel like I was just so fatigued. So I could, nothing was coming to my head. So I'd be blank and then I'd think, I'm not blank when I'm on care, so I'd do it. So I was slightly dependent on it, yeah, definitely. So it feels like the absence of, of the studio, of being able to write music was a, played a huge part because you just, during the yeah. week, you didn't know what to do. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I needed, at that time, I needed to find something that was inspiring, that I could wake up and do every day. Kind of feel like I'd been doing something for so long and I needed something else just didn't have the time to kind of find it or I didn't step back to find it. Do you know what I mean? Was it the case in, in years previously that, you know, the weekends are when you go out and you just go mad and you play your shows and you have a wicked time with Scream or whoever. Yeah. And then during the week, you're more focused, you're yourself, you're in the studio, just yeah. chilling, you know, recuperating and then I go out and play the uh, Again, I feel like nothing ever mattered because when I was making music, that was my grounding. But without that, see you later. Yeah. If you could go back three years, I mean like, yeah, 
late 2013, mid 2013 and tell yourself something then, give yourself one piece of advice, what would you do? What would you say? It's the easiest bit of advice. Slow down, lad. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Slow down. Yeah. I look, I look at myself now and I think to myself, slow down. Yeah. Nothing's going to run away from you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? If you're happy to talk about it, can you lead us through the kind of 18 months that followed that Facebook post? Yeah. So uh, I carried on doing some crazy things and I got to a point where I ended up in hospital. Being in hospital was good for me. You know, obviously they give me some med medication, calmed me down. I feel like I was pretty manic for quite a while and yeah. it wasn't really coming down. Um, so they give me some medication, some sedatives, and then they obviously give me some antipsychotics and stuff like that to kind of keep me level. Um, <clears throat> so I took those antipsychotics for a while after I got out of hospital and I started to realise all of the stuff that I'd been doing was just like, wow, it hit me at once. Yeah. It's like, whoa, you've done this, you've done that, you'd upset this person, you've done this, and you don't DJ anymore. <laughs> So yeah, I'd started. <laughs> no job. <laughs> no job. <laughs> Bruh, everything's gone. Like everything. Right. So that hit me. And um, I went back to my mum's house for a bit. Yeah. Which at the time I really didn't want to do. I just wanted to go to my own house and just chill. It's probably the best option. Yeah. Give me some time to actually just think. So I think for maybe three or four months, I was in the studio a little bit, trying to write some ideas. I kind of had this idea that I was gonna do this sound called Future Funk when I was ill, but I still had to figure out exactly how I was gonna do that. Yeah. I'd made this record of artwork called Shut It Down and that was kind of a staple. Mm. That's kind of a, the basis of what I could do. Uh, so six months goes by, I was writing on an office. Uh, so you're just kind of taking it easy day to day. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Just kind of taking it easy, reflecting. So music was present throughout the whole thing? Yeah, definitely. There wasn't one time where I stopped writing, but I obviously wasn't playing. I obviously didn't know what anything sounded like out. But yeah, music was present. So tell us about a decision to return, you know, because you officially retired. Mm -hmm. But now you're back. I mean, was it just a case of feeling better? <sighs> nah, definitely not. I didn't think, you know what, I'm better, I'm ready to play, let's go play shows. Never that, I'm just not that person at all. My mindset is, have I got something to offer? Right. I wouldn't necessarily say, what does the industry need? Can I provide it? But it's like, have I got something to offer? Sure. And I feel like nobody has been able to kind of sit down and kind of go, this is what I've done in the past. Can I take what I was doing into the past, what I was doing in the past, into the future, flip it, and kind of give people something new that's not around? And I actually had the chance to do that. Do you know what I mean? So I tried, and I'm trying to do that. Does it feel like, I mean, not quite starting from scratch, but you're kind of building something up again? I mean, how does it feel coming back into being Benga, being an artist? <laughs> yeah, it's like, I feel like right now at this very moment, I'm still trying to realign. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I'm still trying to figure out 
exactly where I am because I kind of, I have to feel like I'm in the right place. Sure. And I don't just mean that like mentally, like am I stable mentally? I mean that like, is everything around me moving at the same pace as I am? Do I feel right in the club? Is the music right for where I want to be now? Like the production style. Am I overcooking things because it's too early for that? Mm. Nobody wants overcooked shit at the moment. They just want ideas. I just want to make ideas. Do I feel happy with everything going on around me? So to answer your question, how do I feel? I'm still realigning. Come back, I feel like, and I'm just being brutally honest, slightly premature. Yeah. Come out of last year a little bit with the fairies. So I'm kind of just like... <laughs> Getting yeah. there, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The Guardian article came out in October 2015. The response to that in your tweets was pretty overwhelming, you know. People were very appreciative and happy that you came out and, and were kind of spreading this message. I mean, was that an important part of your own recovery? I wouldn't necessarily say it was an important part of my own recovery, but I thought I, I owed it to people to just be real. Yes, now you recognise your symptoms. Do you think that mental health is a bigger issue in dance music than we realise? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I not only hear from other people that are suffering with mental health issues, but I see people that are wavering, you know. I guess I'm obviously more open and I speak to people a lot more about things. But people, are, there are quite a few people that are still closed off about it. For me anyway, I was really young when I started. Yeah. So you don't really get time to become really self-aware. Life needs to hit you before you actually really start touring. And then you kind of, you're like, whoa, I feel like this and I feel like that. And you can express that. And if you have to take it to what really is the issue, would you say it's the drugs and the alcohol? Or would you just say it's the lack of self-awareness? Yeah. So the period before you retired was a really interesting time in your career. You know, you were kind of stepping out, being Benga, the club DJ, and entering Benga, the producer, working with more vocalists. I feel like the start of that for me was Magnetic Man, the major label deal, the headline shows. How did that project first come about? I guess we was just being mates and we was just making music. Me and Scream started off like bunking school and just like making tunes at my mum's house and stuff like that. So we'd always made tunes before. So we had a couple beats and Sarah from Rinse, who's a genius, she heard the music and was just like, why don't you lot just come and play a show at Forward? And at this time we was just anonymous. No one knew, well, they kind of could tell from the sound who it was, but it was playing the game. Mm. Artwork being artwork came up with an idea of how we could make it look at Forward. So we ended up playing this show with a blind that covered, and all you could see is silhouettes. But at this time, I had this massive afro. Uh, this was before everyone was like taking pictures and uploading pictures like right. constantly and video constantly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you could keep a secret-ish. Anyway, so we did that and it went down wicked and we made a lot more music and then we started to do this show. We got a grant from the Arts Council. Yeah, Princess Trust. And it was like, do your live show. So again, artwork comes up with another idea, which is too funny, mate. It was too funny. Like what we would do is we would create this kind of box 
and we would be in it with our laptops and stuff and we would get in it. <laughs> I don't know whose idea it was, but we would start off like this and then we would just rise. <laughs> and we was like the Jack in the Box show. It was funny. We did it at Cargo first, I think. Yeah. And that was the beginning because we was just making tunes and it was blowing up. It was at the same time, me and Scream was touring quite heavily. Our tunes were blowing up. It just made sense. Was the idea to bring dubstep to a wider audience? Nah. Never did we have any thoughts like that. We just wanted to build tunes and tour. So you just wanted to collaborate as a free? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a bigger sound. Well, when it come to the album, definitely. Right. I guess at that time, when we started making Magnetic Man album, the first album, we had just come back from Australia and our heads were in different places. Definitely. I, do you know what? I remember coming back from Australia and like playing all these massive shows like consecutively and then thinking, so I feel like I was definitely in this headspace anyway. I was just like, I want to smash this. All right. When we went to the studio in Cornwall, because we built a studio in Rock in Cornwall, it was so funny. So funny. Like the funniest things happened in that place. <laughs> anyway, so we built a studio and we recorded this album and I kind of feel like we wanted to, we still wanted it to have it. We still wanted tunes like Mad. We still wanted tunes like, do, 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 do. I can't remember what that's called. But we had these tunes like I Need Air. We had these tunes like Getting Nowhere. And it was just like, at that time, with Artworks influence as well, you know, he's he's been involved in yeah. hits, smashes. Daniel Bedingfield, top level hits. And plus he's worked his way up from like studio kid. And he understands that life, you know, um, production style anyway, and recording life. So we had him in our camp and we kind of just recorded with some wicked people. Before you knew it, we had this thing, which I don't think we even knew we was going to make. Stop. I mean, was it working with the major and like, and the whole Magnetic Man thing just that gave you that taste of the kind of next level? No, I was already, I was already kind of there. Just before we went in and did the Magnetic Man album, I had done it on a mission. Right. Do you know what I mean? And I was getting there in my head. I have always been that kind of guy. I grew up listening to Michael Jackson. I grew up listening to all kinds of music. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't just like, dubstep didn't just fall on my lap and then I was just like, I'm gonna do this for the rest of my life. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. just like I grew up listening to music. I was ready at the point. So what was it you were, uh moving away from them? Did you feel pigeonholed? I don't even think it was super conscious. It was really how I felt subconsciously and what was going on around me that was making me kind of be so abrupt and kind of just be so um, spontaneous with my, what I was saying to the media at the time. I just feel like, you know, I was playing a lot of shows and as I was turning up, it was what I was playing compared to what other people was playing at certain times, it was just like, whoa. I was always so varied and I would play some tear out, but I'd have some techier things and this and that, but then I was turning up and people were just like, bang, bang, bang. And it was just getting crazier and crazier. Yeah. And I was just like, I spent some time in the studio as well. I can remember it. Like it was just that I actually listened to some of the tunes that I was making at the time. And it was just like, I was lost in it. I was like trying to compete with it. And, it was like an arms race who can just go in the hardest. Like. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, bruv? And I'm like, there, and I'm like, 
kind of caught up in this thing. And I'm just thinking to myself, I need to do something that I can do the stuff that made me happy again. Part of what I'm doing now, it's because I was there at the beginning. I remember how I felt. I remember what was going on. So by me kind of branching out and doing this thing again, it's like, can I just go back to kind of just being creative and Future Funks allows me to do that. Yeah. It was never ever about me trying to be like um, a hero. Yeah. It was just about me being creative again. I mean, with Future Funk, yeah. I mean, around that period in 2012, 2013, you were working a lot of vocalists mm -hmm. and you were like cultivating this idea of like, you know, it's a lofty comparison, but Dre, Timberland, you know, someone mm -hmm. who people come to for beats. Mm -hmm. And you were working with some pretty big artists. Yeah. The Future Funk stuff or what you're doing now, is that, are you doing like just Benga the club beats or is that, are you going to try to cultivate that image again? I feel like I... One step at a time. Maybe. Yeah, to a certain degree. But I kind of feel like, for me, first and foremost, like you say, one step at a time, get the sound where it's exciting. Part of the thing about that period was that, you know, you 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 growing up making, playing music that's 140, and mm -hmm. dubstep is kind of defined by its tempo. But after a while, it's kind of limiting, I imagine. You know, you want to make tracks that, as soon as you make a track, it's not 140, oh, it's not dubstep, Benga's doing something else. Yeah. But I can imagine, you know, you just would want to break out of that mould. Yeah, that's it. It's just about breaking out. And especially for me, what I was doing was so distinctive. It was just like these shuffly beats and yeah. the way the bass was centered around the beats and the drums. There was no better way for me for just to go scrap those drums that I was doing for a bit and kind of just go... <laughs> you've always seemed super ambitious. You know, you've always like... You said you came back from Australia and you're like, I want to smash this. Like... Mm -hmm you see no ceiling like this can go through the roof I mean has that been in you from young yeah I feel like <laughs> coming back and what I set my sights on how to do it and how I was going to do it that was fearless and that was ambitious yeah still going for it I'm still at it I think that just comes from a belief you know it just comes from a belief now more than ever it just comes from a belief that I have the ability to do it yeah and the platforms I want to take it back even further Right to the beginning. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you born and raised then? Yeah. Nice. No, 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 lie, lie. <laughs> I was born in Hackney. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And then I moved to Croydon way when I was about seven. So what was life like there growing up? In Croydon? What was it like for me? I feel like a lot of the time I spent going to parties when I was a kid, going to like shubs, playing sets with Scream. And so when did you actually meet Scream? I feel like I was about 12. Wow, okay. Going 13. I feel like when I actually first met Scream, I don't think I knew him that well. I think it was just like, he was turning up to a party to play. I was turning up to a party to play. And he played tunes. I don't, I don't even think I realised he was as young as he was. Like, same age as me. Just remember, I, I, we turned up to this party in Selsden and I feel like I, we both played sets, but didn't actually meet him properly or start speaking to him on the phone until a couple of years later. So. so you were DJing from what age? 12, 13 years 12. old, yeah. Is that the influence of your brothers? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, a couple of years later, you're already in velvet rooms, going Crazy. forward. I mean, you know, it reminds me of those stories of the Detroit guys snuck into the back of a 14-year-old in a club. <laughs> you wouldn't get away with that now, mate. <laughs> like, what was that like? What was the atmosphere, the music? It must have been... 
mad experience. Crazy. I remember going to Velvet Rooms. I don't think it was that busy either. I just feel like it was all of the people from Apple just excited to hear Hatcher play our tunes. You know, only place Hatcher was playing that kind of music. So, did it have like a resounding impact on you? Do you feel like, well, this is something I want to be a part of? Yeah, definitely. Definitely to a degree. I feel like being able to go out and hear your tunes that young is almost nearly the feeling of making it. It's nearly the feeling that you've established yourself, but you know nothing, dear. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested in this idea of, you know, making music that sounds like nothing else. Where were you pulling your inferences from as a, as a young producer? I guess the first people that kind of inspired me were LB and Wookie. They just had these skippy beats and these dark bass lines. So then that was inspiring me. So I was making tunes, trying to copy that. And then also people like Soul Solid come about and Musical Mob come about and they made like Pulse X and Dilemma and tunes like that, which just was like, that's so stripped back. There's nothing in that. We was trying to make these tunes that were just like really well produced in Bad Boy Studios. And then we heard that and it was like, yo, we can do this. I feel like from that point, we stripped it pretty back. And then I came out with Skank, which is like my first release. And then we carried on moving. And I feel like Lofa come about and he started doing some hip hop vibes. And then we kind of settled along this kind of 140 tempo. The basses were so loud at the point. I don't even know how people were cutting them to dub. Like Jay, I don't know how he was doing it. He was just like bass, like crazy. Um, yeah, so Lofa played a massive part in bringing like a hip hop vibe to it. And that was it, it was away from it. I kind of, we inspired each other. Like Scream would do something and then I would hear something and be like, to be fair, Obviously, we inspired each other, but the, uh, the plugins around at the time inspired us as well. Okay. Software coming with sounds that nobody had ever heard, like Albino coming around and me and Scream messing with that. And then. Yeah, I mean, those years, 2004, 2008, let's say, were incredibly prolific for you. You know, yeah, like, respects. did music, was it making music come easily? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I feel like you just, you sit in the studio, every sound is inspiring. Again, you hear something that Scream does and it's just like you sit down and you hear a sound and it's like, bang, I've got this idea. But also it's exciting because it's like, you dictate the direction this music goes. Of course. Like it's never existed before. Of course. So whatever you do, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> when you think about it that it's like, way. It's a blank canvas, you know. It's when like, you think about it that way. Let's talk about Night, mm -hmm. your big smash hit. Does it feel like you can kind of mark your career before and after Night? <laughs> to a certain degree because I feel like it changed slightly and it took time for that to balance itself out but I feel like I started playing some shows that I was not used to right you got any examples <laughs> well I played this show with Soul Solid in Cardiff and it was like I remember I'd been playing shows and by this point I was playing shows that people got what the music was about right I turned up to do this gig with Soul Solid in Cardiff and it was just like, not one tune went down and then, and 
Tune's done. Finished. No one's raving anymore. I was playing them kind of shows, you know what I mean? For a little bit. So because um, I was just listening to your essential mix from I think 2011, yeah, and Judge Jules was presenting it, it's making <laughs> me laugh. Um, and he was saying that like it was getting played Radio One during the day. Yeah, yeah. You know, for a dubstep tune. I mean, yeah, it's mad. But doesn't it just show the power of the people? Yeah. I mean, how do you feel about Night Now? Yeah, I still love the record. Sometimes I hear it and I forget about some of the things in it myself, like percussion-wise and how I did it. That file is long gone now, so I cannot remember how that was made. But yeah. Do you remember listening to it with Koki and thinking this is a hit? No. <laughs> <laughs> we always thought the records were good, especially when they sounded that different. Because that was the aim, right? It was always the aim, like, to sit down in the studio and create something that we had never heard before. It was a real patience, yeah. like, sitting down and like, crafting noises yeah. to make them sound like how they did. I'm pretty sure we kind of just like, made it and was like, yeah, this is wicked and we're going to play it on the weekend. <laughs> so obviously we've mentioned Scream a few times. Um, I have to ask you about your relationship with him. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine a few things more fun than having a childhood friend and then just touring the world, playing shows, playing music together. It must have been. Crazy. What is it about the partnership that worked so well? i got to give him props, like massive props because it wasn't until I started to really reflect that I realised how much of a friend to me he actually was. Like, incredible, incredible, incredible. I'm not to say that wasn't vice versa, like we didn't both put up with each other's shit, because we did. He wasn't only just inspiring, he was helpful, and he, and he looked out for me. And I feel like him more so than I, he really looked out for me. Are you speaking about your entire career or just more recently? Nah, entire career. The boy is a very sound character yeah and he looked out for me proper was it him looking out for you like more so in that just in the kind of dynamic of the relationship ah no because I feel like we (laughs) you know I was the guy that was like I probably played most of the part of getting us from show to show right but I feel like put it this way if somebody said a bad word about me to scream they wouldn't know what planet it was on his career's taken a pretty interesting like left turn. Pretty amazing what, how well he's taken to it and how well he's doing. Yeah. Was that something you kind of envisioned happening? I mean, he was always dabbling, wasn't he? Yeah. He, he was never going to go into it and, and fail at it. Right. He had everything going for him. You know, he's charismatic. He's talented. <laughs> what more? Yeah, I mean, Scream is one of many who's, you know, diverged and done other things and excelled at it so well you've got you know, Ben UFOs Scubas artworks even mm-hmm. it's clear that there was just so much talent in that generation apart from what was going on at the time with internet and stuff we was brought up on good music brought up on the really talented musicians and a wealth of great music yeah definitely I mean just from speaking to you it's like there's just there was just such a kind of youthful confidence about what you're doing in just in a great way, you know, yeah. just like like a belief. See, this is it. This is another thing, dude. I feel like that's why partly my two year hiatus was just great because I did spend some time listening, but the rest of the time I was just like separated. And I kind of when I started producing again, I tried a load of new things to make a new sound. And it's kind of like. Some of the tunes 
I never would have been able to make because I would have been like, nah, it would have sound, it sounds too cheap or it sounds too whack or it sounds too this or it sounds too that because of production style. It's another thing that came to me. So I started uploading some tunes to my SoundCloud where I was just like, people were like, that's unfinished. And I was like, isn't that up to the artist? Do you know what I mean? And I feel like it should be that way because it's like part of the reason why things sound so the samey because it's like things have to match up. Yeah. You know? People can't be as creative because it's like, this is this. But I guarantee you, if you give people the right idea, the production is not going to be the be all and end all. It's a song. 